Our Old Testament reading is Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 28. And this is the inerrant and infallible word of the Lord. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 5 for our New Testament reading. And this is also our sermon text this morning. Romans 5 verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So far in our study of Romans, we have seen that uh, the major truth or the major theme of the letter is the truth that uh, we have been justified, that is, we have been made right with God uh, by faith in Jesus Christ and apart uh, from works. Uh, So justification by faith alone, this teaching, this truth, uh, this has been Paul's main concern uh, so far in Romans, especially in the last couple of chapters, chapters 3 and 4, that this has been uh, Paul's uh, subject is indicated in the the very first word of our passage this morning in chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul begins by saying, Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the the therefore tells us that whatever Paul is about to say, it has everything to do with, it is based upon what he's already been saying, and that is that our justification is by faith in Christ, by faith alone. And now, uh, Paul has already touched on As we have gone through Romans, he's already touched on what uh, justification by faith means for us uh, who believe in Christ. Uh, It means that we are no longer subject to the wrath of God that otherwise is due to us because of our sin and guilt. Uh, Because of what Christ has done for us, because of who he is as the Son of God, and because he lived a life of perfect righteousness, he suffered and died in, in our place. He was raised from the dead because of all these things. Uh, Our sins are forgiven. Um, The guilt of our sin is removed from us forever and ever. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, 
You are no longer the subject of the wrath of God, but uh, you are the object of God's favor. Uh, In the sight of God, in Christ, you are perfectly holy and righteous. And of course, that is a blessing of incalculable worth. There is no greater blessing that we could possibly desire or hope for. That on the day of judgment, a day in which we will all stand before God and before Christ as our judge on that day, rather than condemnation, rather than the eternal destruction that was our due because of our sin and guilt, we will receive everlasting life. As Paul will will say later in Romans in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there is no condemnation for you, not today, not on the day of judgment, not for all eternity, because you have been brought to God, justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this truth alone, that we are delivered from uh, the coming wrath of God, uh, this truth uh, is life-transforming. Uh, it changes everything uh, for us. Uh, for example, uh, we can live our lives in this world without fear. That is, without the fear of death. We have nothing to fear from death. Uh, we know that the day of our death will be our translation into glory, and that one day, that day of judgment, will mean for us uh, this confirmation of our salvation in Christ. But there are other blessings, other life-transforming blessings that flow to us from this grace, from this truth that we are justified by faith in Christ. And it is these other blessings uh, that come to us because we are justified uh, That is the concern of Paul in the passage that uh, we just heard from Romans. So Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul is concerned uh, to tell us of these other blessings that are ours as those who have been justified by faith. First of all, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Secondly, we have the hope of the glory of God. And thirdly, we have the love of God poured into our hearts. So we'll look at each one of those in turn. First of all, we have peace. We have peace with God. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we can uh, take that verse and just isolate the one word, peace, uh, if we can just take that word, peace, and in that little word, uh, we have uh, an ideal, a hope, that has always been longed for uh, by the human race. Uh, People have yearned uh, for peace, for peace, for peace in the world. Uh, My parents, uh, they grew up and they they now live in in, uh, western Montana in a a city uh, called Missoula. And uh, for years, on a mountaintop just north of Missoula, there was a gigantic peace symbol that was hand-painted on a telephone tower, and that was visible for everyone to see in Missoula. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny, the, apparently the telephone company would, would paint over the peace sign, and then the, 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 whoever it was, they would sneak up there at night and repaint the peace sign. And finally, the telephone company just, just gave up and it just let it sit there. 
And so for years and years, it became this sort of icon uh, overlooking uh, the city of Missoula, this giant peace symbol. Eventually, the telephone company uh, took down the tower, so it's no longer up there. Now, peace may mean different things to different people. And we may, and we probably do, strongly disagree with the specific ideology behind you know, the peace symbol. But that, that giant peace sign was a reminder, uh, when I saw it, it was a reminder that there is a, a nearly universal longing uh, for peace, for peace on earth. Uh, this is something that we have not known in our uh, history. Ever since Cain murdered Abel, the history of the human race has been one of warfare, of, of violence, of bloodshed, of killing. And so, with the exception of those who have a perverse love of bloodshed, everybody longs for what uh, the world has not known, and that is a world without war, a world without killing, a world without um, the shedding of blood and conflicts, where peace reigns. But what if we were to achieve that, that dream? What if we could obtain somehow a true world peace? What if we were able to create a world in which there was finally peace among nations, peace in our communities, a peace in our homes? Even if we could achieve that impossible dream in the most basic, the most fundamental, and the most important way, we would still be without peace. And that's because we would have no peace with God. And this is really the heart of the problem of the human condition. It's not so much that we lack peace on earth. Of course, that's uh, true, and it's the cause of all kinds of misery. But even more fundamentally, more basically, the peace that we lack is peace between heaven and earth. Uh, By nature, we are at war. We are at war with God. We are alienated from God. We are the enemies of God. Uh, To put it very bluntly, in our sin, we hate God. We hate his lordship over us. And so we are rebels against the very God who created us, who gives us life, who gives us so many good things in this world. We have declared our independence from him. We do not want him to rule over us. And in our hearts, we are at war with him. But that's not the worst of it. The worst part of all of this is not even that we are at war with God and not at peace with God, but that God is not at peace with us. God is not at peace with us, and that is our problems, as we have already read in Romans. His wrath, his righteous indignation, his wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is our problem. We have no peace with God. And so the most pressing question that faces us as sinful human beings is this. It's not even so much how can I be reconciled to God, but how can God be reconciled to me? How can a holy and righteous God who is a purer eyes than to behold evil, who cannot compromise his justice, his righteousness, how can he be reconciled to me, a sinner who is guilty of transgressing, transgressing his commandments? How can his righteous wrath be turned away from us? And of course, the answer is the gospel. This is, this is why the gospel is good news. This is, this is God's answer to our most, 
pressing problem as human beings, as sinners. And this is what Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has done for us. We heard from Romans again in chapter 3, verse 25, that, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to take away our sins. Jesus is a propitiation, that is, he satisfies, he takes the wrath of God upon himself for you and me, so that by faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer looks upon us and he's, he's no longer wrathful, he's no longer angry because of our sin. But Jesus took that for us. And so, by faith in Christ, we are no longer the objects of God's wrath, but he looks now at us with peace. He is at peace with us in Christ. He looks upon us with favor. Uh, his face smiles upon us in Christ. And that is the peace that verse 1 is talking about. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because God is at peace with us. Because of what uh, Jesus has done for us. And it's because of this peace with God that our hearts can be filled with that, that peace of God. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In Philippians, we are told that, that when we pray uh, to the Lord, that the peace of God, which uh, surpasses all understandings, uh, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That peace uh, that uh, gives us such uh, a sense of um, tra tranquility, of calm in the face of God, this peace that Jesus gives us, the peace that fills our hearts. This is the peace that we enjoy all because of this truth that is based on this truth that we are at peace with God because God has made peace with us. And only Jesus can give us this peace. There is no other way for us, for sinners, to be made right with God, to be at peace with him, other than by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you probably are familiar, um, R.C. Sproul, he, when he would dialogue with uh, an unbeliever or uh, someone from a different religion, uh, he would often ask them a question. He would say, uh, tell me, what do you do with your guilt? You know, with this uh, belief system that you have or with this religious system that you've adopted, what, what do you do with your guilt? And isn't that a great question? Uh, because guilt is a universal experience. It is something that all people uh, feel. And the reason why we all feel guilt is because we all have guilt. We know that God has something against us. And so the question is, what can we do with our guilt? Well, we can try to deny it. Uh, we can just deny our guilt, but our conscience has a way of, of speaking to us that, that won't uh, allow us to do that. Hopefully, it won't allow us to do that. Uh, we can try to numb our guilt uh, with uh, diversions or pleasures or alcohol, but of course, that only compounds the problem. We may try to forgive ourselves as though our sin is really against us and not against God. Or we may try to atone for our guilt by becoming a better person, by doing good deeds or by becoming religious. But none of these 
ways can really deal with our guilt because none of them can take it away. It is still there. We still feel it. Only Jesus Christ can remove our guilt from us forever. Only Jesus Christ can give you that true and lasting peace with God that is the basis for true peace of hearts. Only Christ can do that. And he does that for everyone who comes to him by faith. I love the prayer of St. Augustine. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And only Jesus can give us that true rest, that true peace that we long for. And he gives it in abundance when we come to him humbly and in faith. But even as a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably at times still feel uh, the weight of guilt. And, And maybe intellectually in your mind, you know, I have been forgiven. But nevertheless, when your mind replays the things that you said in the past or the things that you did in the past or the way in which you hurt someone else in the past, in your heart, you begin again to feel that shame and that guilt. Well, when you do, you need to tell yourself this truth again and again, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have peace. God is at peace with you. And what Paul is saying here in verse 1, that we have peace with God, he's not talking about how we feel, but he's talking about an objective reality that does not depend upon our feelings. Whether or not you feel at peace or feel guilty, the truth is, if you belong to Christ by faith, you are at peace with God. And so, as a believer, when you feel that that shame and that guilt of your sin, you flee again to Christ and to this verse to know that, no, you are forgiven. You have peace. God is at peace with you. As we heard from Psalm 103 earlier, God has removed our transgressions from us and the guilt of our transgressions as far as the east from the west. This is an immeasurable distance. He remembers our sins no more. And so here is one of the great blessings that belong to us as believers in Christ, that in this life and forever we have peace with God. And so we can enjoy the peace of God. A second great blessing is this, that as a Christian, you have the hope of the glory of God. In verse two, Paul says this, he says, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't use the word hope in the same way that we often use the word hope. Uh, If you're uh, if you're a sports fan, if you have a favorite team, uh, you know that at the beginning of every season, uh, you have great hopes for your team. And so you tell yourself, I hope that this is the year that they go all the way. Or if your team is particularly uh, terrible, you might say, I hope this year they will not be as bad as they were last year. Uh, But what this hope is, is not really hope in any biblical sense. This is just a kind of uncertain longing. Uh, Really, it's just a desire of your heart that you hope to see something that will happen. But you have no sense of assurance. You have no reason to be assured that what you desire will actually come to pass. So you hope for it, having no assurance of the outcome. You hope for the best. That's what we say, we hope for the best. But as Christians, we do not hope for the best. That is not the biblical 
meaning of hope. But the biblical meaning of hope is this, is that God gives us an infallible, an infallibly certain promise that will come to pass, that he will bring about what God promises to do for us. He will most definitely do for us. And so our hope in Christ is certain. It is sure because God is God. He is unchanging. He cannot lie. He does not change his purposes. And therefore, the hope that you have as a Christian is rooted in the very character of God himself. You can rest your life in the hope that he has given you. And this is the hope that Paul is talking about here. And what is this certain hope that we have as those who have been justified by faith in Christ? Paul says in verse 2, it is the hope of the glory of God. And we need to unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to have hope of the glory of God? Well, it means, first of all, this. It's referring to that glory of God. God's glory that will be fully revealed, fully manifested in the consummation of the salvation of his people. It is that hope that Paul later talks about in Romans. In Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so there is a glory that will be revealed to us as the people of God at the end of time, at the return of Christ. And this will be such a incredible thing, such a glory that it will make all of our present sufferings in this world seem as though they are nothing. And they will seem as nothing in comparison to that weight of glory that will be revealed to us. On that day, according to the teaching of Jesus, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. The first time Jesus came into the world, he came in humility. He came in lowliness. But he will not come that way again. He will come in the glory of his Father and of his angels. He will sit on his glorious throne. On that day, we will behold Jesus in the fullness of his divine majesty. And the Bible promises that in some way we'll, we will even share in his glory. The Bible says that we will be raised up in bodies that are glorified, that will be a fit to live, to inhabit in an eternity of glory. And the Bible says that on that day, we will be revealed to all creation as the sons of God, as the children of God. And not only that, but in that state of glory that will go on for all eternity, we shall see the fullness of the glory of God as it will be revealed and manifested fully in all creation. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we have this hope of the, 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 the coming glory of God and of Christ as that will be revealed in the salvation of his people. We don't see that now, not with our eyes. Only by faith do we behold the glory of Christ. The world does not see the glory of Christ. We see it, but only by faith. We do not see yet the glory of the people of God, the glory of the church, the redeemed as saints, we do not see that yet by sight, but we see it by faith. We do not yet see God manifesting his glory in all creation. We only see that by faith. But one day, faith will give way to sight. 
And we will see with our eyes the fullness of God's glory, his majesty, his greatness revealed in all of these ways. And God has so created us. He has given us hearts that, can, uh, that, that long to be filled with his glory. There is no greater delight, no greater joy that you and I can experience than to behold God's glory as it is revealed to us and as it will be revealed to us. Uh, that's the reason why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why are the pure in heart blessed? What is the blessing that belongs to the pure in heart? It is that they shall see God. They shall see God in all his glory. And so that is the hope that we have as those who belong to Christ by faith. And even now, Paul says, we rejoice in this hope. We rejoice in this hope. Now, as we're reading, as, as we're reading along here in, in chapter 5, these first two verses, uh, Paul is telling us these wonderful blessings that belong to us as those who belong to Christ, that we have peace with God, that we rejoice in this hope of the coming glory of God. And our hearts sing with joy and we cry out, Amen, Amen. And then we get to verse 3. And Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then we get real quiet and we say, wait a minute, uh, Paul, that must be a typo. Uh, surely you did not mean to say that we rejoice in our sufferings. Surely what you meant to write here is we rejoice in our triumphs. We rejoice uh, in our blessings. And the, Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us, or more, more truly, that the Holy Spirit tells us, no, that's what I meant to say. As those who are justified by faith in Christ, we even rejoice in our sufferings. But in this way, after Paul gives us this rapturous vision of beholding the glory of Christ, we are brought back to earth again. We are brought back to this place where we suffer all kinds of tribulations and trials and sorrows and pains. But this is where we live out the Christian life in this world of suffering. Uh, these verses made me think of The Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan. At the beginning of the story, as you remember, uh, Christian, he, he goes to the cross uh, near the beginning and his burden, this burden of guilt that was on his shoulders, it falls off at the cross and it rolls down the hill into the grave. And, and Christian sings for joy. Well, he's just experienced what it means to have peace with God. He's at peace with God now. And then at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, at the very end, there's this wonderful, wonderful description of him entering into the, the hope of the glory of God as he, uh, as he comes to the celestial city. And he's, he's taken up by angels into this glorious place where he will spend all eternity. But what happens in between is really the story of, of Christian. It's that pilgrimage, that journey, that is this life in which he experiences so many trials and afflictions and sorrows. And that describes our experience as well as Christians. The Bible says through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul doesn't say here in verse 3 that we enjoy our sufferings. It doesn't say that we enjoy 
suffering. The, the Bible never diminishes in any way the, the pain of suffering that we experience in this world. But what it says is we rejoice in our suffering. So what that means is in our suffering, as difficult, as painful as it is, as Christians, we have cause to rejoice, even as we suffer. And the reason why this is true is because of what Paul goes on to say. We have God's promise that he uses our suffering for good. He uses our suffering for good. Uh, Paul says in verse 2, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So God works in us as we suffer in order to produce this fruit of endurance, this patience by which we persevere uh, by the grace of God in suffering, leaning upon Christ. And this endurance, in turn, produces character. Uh, the character here specifically refers to a character that is approved and, and, and proven by testing, by trial. And so God uses our suffering then as believers to produce and reveal uh, the character that, that pleases him. And this character, in turn, produces hope. And so the Christian who suffers much, the Christian who has suffered much in this world, and has yielded to God in that suffering, he, he hopes much. His hope has been increased, his faith has been increased, because this is the way in which God works through our suffering. And so for that reason then, you and I, we can rejoice even in our suffering, because we know that God is at work in it for our good. And I think, to me, this is one of the, the glories of being a Christian. This is one of the... Uh, the blessings that is ours as Christians in this world. Because as a Christian, I know, I know that whatever trial, whatever sorrow, whatever affliction that God in his providence is pleased to bring me through, I know that God has a loving, redemptive purpose for it, for me in it. Now, God does not tell us why we suffer in particular ways. That is a mystery that belongs to God alone. He does not say why you are suffering in this particular way or why he is suffering in this way. But he does promise us this, that he has a gracious purpose for you in your suffering. That in his perfect wisdom, he has brought this into your life and that he is going to work through it in you in order to, 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 to grow you in grace and in hope and in your love for Christ to prepare you more and more to be uh, ready for that eternal weight of glory that will be yours. I love the way our, our hymn puts it. Uh, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And this is something the unbeliever knows nothing about. For the unbeliever, suffering is only bad. It is only bad. But for the believer, the, the, the suffering itself, the pain itself is bad. But we know that God's purposes for it are very, very good. Very good. And so we have hope. And we can rejoice even in our sufferings. So that is the second bless, the blessing. We have hope of the glory of God. And this hope is increased by God's grace when we suffer. Thirdly, as those justified by faith, we have the love of God poured into our hearts. Paul says in verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We've been uh, hearing Romans tell us over and over again, and it's been wonderful. Uh, As a Christian, as one who belongs to Jesus, you are forgiven. You are justified. But it gets even better than that. You are not only forgiven, you are not only justified, but you are loved. You are loved. You are loved with an abundant love. And the picture that Paul draws here for us is that God is of God deluging. I don't think that's a verb. God sending a deluge of love into our hearts. His love is shed abroad, as some versions put it. He pours out his love. He floods our hearts with his love. And so as a believer, you are loved with an infinite, eternal, never-changing love. It is, it is this love with which God loved you even before he created you. God set his love upon you even before he made you. That one day you should be his, that you should inherit the salvation in Jesus Christ. But now that he has brought you to faith in Christ by his grace, he pours out this love into your heart so that you can know in your heart this love with which God has loved you from all eternity. And he does so by his spirit. And it is this love that God pours into your hearts that gives you the assurance that the hope that you have in Christ will never put you to shame Your hope as a Christian, God will fulfill it, this promise. You will never be let down. You will never be disappointed or put to shame. And the love of God is what grounds, partly at least, grounds this assurance. So what Paul is saying here is this. You have the assurance as a Christian that on the day of judgment, you will be delivered from that wrath to come. You will be saved. Even as your sins are already forgiven, it will be made known to all creation that you are forgiven and adopted as a child of God. This assurance is yours not only because by faith you apprehend the promise of God, the trustworthiness of that promise, but this assurance is also yours because it is rooted in the love that the Father has poured out into your hearts by His Spirit. So how do you know That your hope in Christ will not put you to shame because you know your heavenly father. You know that the father has loved you with this divine love. And because you know your father, because you know the love that he has for you, you know that it is unthinkable, it is impossible that he would ever let you go or ever fail to keep his word to you. And so you can say as a Christian on that day of judgment, I have nothing to fear because I know my father and I know in my heart that he loves me. I have experienced the love that he's poured out into my heart because he loves me. Because he loves me, I know that he will bring to completion that good work that he has begun in me until the day of Jesus Christ. And so because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God, We have the hope of the glory of God, and we have the love of God. Let's pray.